I'm going to read for us from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 35 through to 17, verse 9. And would you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? It says this, But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, and they visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, I can't pronounce it, I've tried all week, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some of the wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is the word of God. You can be seated. So, when I was a freshman or a sophomore in high school, a show came out on the Fox network that you may or may not be familiar with. It was called 24. It was pretty popular and well-liked. I think they've done some sort of rehashes of it. I don't know if they did a new season or something along those lines. Uh, But the way in which TV series traditionally work is that they follow this narrative arc that traces the lives of a couple specific characters over a lengthy period of time, a couple weeks, a couple months, sometimes even a few years. At least that's how they traditionally go. But sort of the gimmick of 24 uh, is that each hour-long episode, and I believe it was a 24-episode season, uh, follows one hour of a character's life in the exact same day. So in theory, uh, if you are the sort of person who would do something like this, you could wake up at 6 in the morning and begin the first episode of the first season of 24. And then by 6 the next morning, if you watched an episode every single hour and only took bathroom breaks and got something to eat, you would have just spent a day in the life of Jack Bauer, secret agent superstar. And so it is a compelling and interesting premise for a TV show. But I say this not to just rehash pop culture. I say this because when we come to Scripture, there are portions of the Bible that serve much like a traditional TV show. A long period of time is condensed into a smaller context or a smaller book setting. So the Gospels would be an example of this. Jesus lived for 30-something years. He had almost three years of public ministry, but a lot of that was spent walking from point A to point B. 
And so Matthew doesn't talk about the 30-mile hike from one city to another where all that they did was walk in silence and kick rocks to entertain themselves. Uh, but instead, you get really the greatest hits of Jesus went here, and he did this, and then he was here, and he did this, and then he went here, and he did this. But Acts 16, specifically the section of Acts we have been in for the last few weeks, is the 24 of biblical texts. Uh, because I don't know if you've considered this, everything that we are discussing in Acts 16, or at least almost all of it, has taken place within a single day's time. So Paul comes into Philippi, which Shane, our high school pastor, preached on, and he enters into Philippi, Lydia, who is a God-fearer, which is a term in Paul's day for someone who is not Jewish but worships the God of Israel. And we know that she's wealthy because she sells purple linen, which was the clothing of kings and queens. And so Paul proclaims the gospel to Lydia, and her and her household repent and believe. Paul spends some days in Philippi being followed around by a slave girl who is possessed by an evil spirit that gives her the ability to discern things that the average person would not be able to discern. And ultimately, Paul grows frustrated with her following them around and crying out things that are drawing attention to them, probably negative attention. And so Paul turns to the slave girl and casts the demon out of her, and this sets in motion the next 24 hours of Paul's life. Because what Paul may or may not realize is that the owners of the slave girl are using her gift to make money, and now their source of money has just dried up. And so, within a few hours, they take Paul and they take Silas, who is traveling with him. They drag them before the magistrates in the city of Philippi. The crowd loses control and assaults them and beats them and bloodies them. The magistrates join in and tear the clothes off of them. They throw them into prison. And we are now 12 hours into the 24-hour day. Because at about midnight in prison, after all these things have happened, Paul and Silas are singing hymns to God and praying. And it's at this point that the foundations of the prison shake. It's at this point that the doors of the prison are thrown open by the, uh, the earthquake that takes place. It's at this point that the shackles fall off of not just Paul and Silas, but all the prisoners. It's at this point that the guard, the Philippian jailer, wakes up and sees all the doors open and thinks, I just lost my entire prison block. And he takes out his sword to kill himself. And it's at this point that Paul says, don't harm yourself, we're all still here. And Paul and Silas' integrity in this moment is the platform upon which they can stand to proclaim the gospel. The Philippian jailer has probably heard why Paul is in here, that he's teaching these strange ideas, that he cast this demon out of the slave girl. Uh, he's heard about the riot. He's heard that they've been beaten. He's heard what the magistrates think of them. But now Paul, now Paul has the ability to speak. He says, I've heard all this weird stuff you believe, but now I'm interested. So Paul shares the gospel with him. And he receives the gospel and steps into the kingdom of God. And then he takes Paul and Silas out of the prison into his home. He bandages their wounds. He feeds them. He allows them to speak with the rest of his family, which is converted. And then he brings them back, and he puts them back in their cell. And our text for the day picks up the morning after. So we're at hour 23 of our 24-hour day. And so the text begins in this way. Acts chapter 16, verse 35. When it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. 
And the jailer reported these words to Paul. This is the jailer who was just saved. He said, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul responds, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned. We men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us in prison. And they want to throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. So I majored in religion at the University of South Florida. Uh, maybe there's some bulls in here. Um, but one of the things that they required of me with that degree is to take a bunch of gen ed courses that ultimately didn't have anything to do with my degree. And so it was a great way to extort money from me. Um, but I'm not bitter about that at all. <laughs> uh, but one of the classes that I took that they actually required of me was Intro to Criminal Justice or Criminology. And I looked at my schedule because they had pretty much booked the schedule for me my freshman semester, and I thought, I have no idea why I'm in this. But I actually really came to enjoy the class. I, th I thought it was super fascinating. Uh, and one of the things that we discussed in this class was the different theories of why we punish crime or what the purpose of punishment is for criminals. And I, I don't know if you've considered this before, but there's some different opinions on why we put people in jail, why we why we sentence people to death, why we offer different forms of punishment. And so one of these theories that we discussed is protective. Uh, this individual has done something to damage the society at large, and so we want to protect people at large, and so we remove this person from society, and we put them somewhere separate to protect everybody else from further damage. Uh, but there's other people who say, well, maybe there's a protective element here. Uh, but, but I think, or they would say at least, that ultimately the purpose of imprisonment should be correctional, right? We call prisons correctional facilities from time to time, right? We're not just taking them out of society, but hopefully during their stay in the house with bars on the windows, we are teaching them how to go back into society and to live better and to live in a more productive way. So there, some people say, well, maybe it's protective, but also maybe there's a correctional element to it. And other people say, no, 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 it's, it's not just protective or correctional, it's punitive. The purpose of prison and inflicting punishment on crime is that these people have inflicted some sort of damage to society and they need to pay for it equally. So we have phrases like the punishment must fit the crime. But there's one more theory that people offer as to why we punish crime. And that is as a deterrent. Uh, really, people who advocate for the deterrent theory of criminal punishment, they think it serves two purposes. They say that whatever the crime is, the punishment must be of the sort of thing that whoever did it does not want to do it again. And whoever was thinking about doing it sees what happened to the person who did it and said, actually, that sounds like a bad idea. So, maybe you've heard this. In, in the ancient world, they, they practiced... Uh, punishment as a deterrent with people who were thieves. If somebody stole something from the marketplace, the punishment was that you got your hand cut off. And so for the person who stole something, I can just imagine them sitting there and going, you know, God saw fit to give me two of these, and I'm down to one. This sounds like a bad idea to continue in this sort of lifestyle. And I can imagine the people who are thinking about stealing something going, you know, I've got two of these, and I like both of them. Stealing sounded like a great idea until I saw what happened to Steve, who stole the apple. I think I'm going to hold off on that one. And this plays out even in our homes. I know in my home, when I was younger, 
if I said bad words, the punishment was that I got my mouth washed out with soap. And I'm sure that some of you remember that, and you remember the wonderful taste of lye soap and how horrible it is. And I remember that this only happened to me once or twice in the, the whole of my childhood because I was just a little angel the whole of my life. <laughs> but I, I remember one instance early on in which I was at my cousin Ben's house, and he had said something... I don't know. I think he'd called somebody stupid or an idiot or something like that. And I watched my aunt wash his mouth out with soap, and I said, I never want that to happen to me, ever. Because I watched him cry, and I watched him gag, and I watched him rinse his mouth out in the sink for hours, and I was like, never, never will I do anything like that, even if I thought it was a good idea before. The punishment has deterred me from committing the crime. Now, I say all this not to walk you through legal theory, but, but because the reason... It seems is that the Philippians, or the reason it seems that the Philippians have thrown Paul and Silas in jail is as a deterrent. They've had them beaten publicly, so everybody sees what happens to people like Paul and Silas. They've had them thrown in prison without any sort of a trial, so everybody knows what happens to people like Paul and Silas. And they're letting them out, hoping that Paul and Silas will say, you know, this preaching the gospel sounded like a good idea until this happened. Why don't we kind of just take our punishment and leave quietly. I'm pretty sure that the Philippian leaders expect to open the jail cell and have Paul and Silas crawl out, thanking them and kissing the feet of their liberators and go quietly into the annals of history. And I'm sure that they expect fully that the Christians in Philippi are going to do the same thing. You know, this gospel thing sounded like a great idea, Lydia says to herself, until I saw what happened to people who believe it. And actually, I think I'm just going to stick with God-fearing down by the river. You know, this gospel thing sounded like a great idea after the earthquake, says the Philippian jailer, but then I saw what happened to these men, so I think I'm just going to stick to my paganism. They expect this to be a deterrent, but what is astounding is that Paul and Silas are entirely undeterred by it. Part of the reason that Paul is the greatest missionary is that you can't do anything to take the wind out of his sails. We're going to beat you publicly. That's fine. We're going to throw you in prison. That's cool. I'll preach the gospel there. We're going to kill you. That's great. I would love to see Jesus again. We're going to let you live. That's fine, but I'm going to keep doing it. He is undeterrable. And this is, this is incredible to me because I consider how many times in my life minuscule, insignificant, unimportant bumps in the road derail my Christian walk for months. I have a conversation with a friend about the gospel, and they ask questions I can't answer. That still happens to me, if it's any comfort to you. And I'm scared to to share the gospel with people for months. Maybe that's happened to you at work. We walk through one season of pain or suffering, and it derails our confidence in God's goodness for years. Paul is undeterred, and in chapter 17, which we'll get to, he leaves being beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, and then he just goes to three other cities and does the same thing. Oh, man, that we here at Baylife Church would be filled with believers who are undeterred in their pursuit of the kingdom of God and the advancement of the gospel, despite the confrontation and the conflict and the persecution of the world, that we would be a people who are undeterred as those who ran the race before us were. So they open the prison doors. 
And the Philippian jailer says, hey, you're free to go. Go in peace. And Paul does not respond as is expected. Take a look at Paul's actual words. He says to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens. They have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. You may remember last week uh, that we talked about a, a little bit of what the trial of Paul was. Uh, and there was no trial at all. Paul and Silas are dragged by these men before a mob. They are assaulted by a mob. They are accused before a mob. They are not given at any point the opportunity to answer the accusations, to combat the accusations. There is no question that this is an abuse of justice. But perhaps, perhaps you heard this last week and you said, well, but that was then. And we have progressed so much as a society in our understanding of justice. That, that's just the way things were in the ancient world. C.S. Lewis actually has a phrase that I think is pretty, pretty insightful. Uh, he calls us chronological snobs, where we think that just because we're further along that we understood things better than the people that came before us. Uh, understand that there were a lot of problems in the ancient world, but this was still injustice even in Paul's day and age. And Paul actually points to this reality because he says, we are Roman citizens. And here's what we know from his history uh, and some of the historical documents that have been preserved is that there were decrees that were sent out by Caesar that laid out the standards for how Roman citizens were to be treated in a court of law. One such decree is called the Lex Julia. And what it says is that a Roman citizen cannot be beaten or punished or imprisoned without a Roman trial. And if there is a trial proceeding unjustly, the only thing that they have to do is say, I am a Roman citizen, and everything must stop, and they must be put before a Roman court of law and not a local court of law. But this has not happened. And it's altogether likely that Paul and Silas, while they are being assaulted by the mob, have been trying to say, hey, we're Roman citizens, but the mob's not paying attention. And so Paul essentially stages the first sit-in protest. He says, I'm not leaving my cell until I get an apology because you broke the law. And Paul sits in his jail cell in Philippi and calls the systems of government in his world to repentance. I realize that, I realize that uh, many of you are the parents of children who are my age or close to my age. You, you've got kids that are coming out of high school and going into college. You've got kids who are in college or you have kids who are coming out of college and stepping into the workforce. Uh, let me offer for you maybe a little bit of insight into the way that many millennials and people in my generation think uh, and, and the way that I am tempted to think when I look at the world around us. Many of us look at the systems of government and the corruption and the prejudice and the inherent biases in the systems that we find ourselves in and we say, it is too wicked, it is too broken, my vote does not matter, it will not count, why try I give up? But when I read this text, I am convicted of my apathy by Paul. Because Paul and Silas are two men against the entire system of government in Philippi. And they sit in that jail cell and they call that government to repent. So I am convicted of my apathy on issues of injustice. And you may have the same perspective as many of us are tempted to have. You say, it's too broken. The system is too wicked. What is the point in trying? Let's wait for Jesus to come back. 
He can change it. But I think Paul says to us, we try and this matters because, it, because the people of God must be marked by their love of justice at all times, not just when they are the moral majority, but even when they are the prophetic minority. So when we see our black brothers and sisters facing injustice, we cry out for justice. When we see the poor in our community ignored and marginalized, we cry out for justice. When we see laws that are corrupt and unfair and abuses of power, as Paul saw in Philippi, we cry out for justice because our God is just and his people must care about the things that their God cares about. So Paul sits in his jail cell. He stages a sit-in protest and he says, I am not leaving until you repent. And what is astounding is that they do repent. And the Philippians come to him in the middle of the night. Or not in the middle of the night, but the police report this to the magistrates. And we're told that they're afraid. And so they came and they apologized. They took them out and they asked them to leave the city. So Paul and Silas went out of the prison. They visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and they departed. Now, they passed through the city that I can't pronounce, and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So we notice that this is Paul's custom. We see it in Acts we see it in his letters that he talks about his heart for the Jewish people, that anytime he steps into a city, he finds the synagogue, if there is one, there wasn't one in Philippi, but he finds the synagogue and he reasons with the Jewish people there about who Jesus is. So there's, there's two reasons likely for this. The first of which is that the Jewish people received the Old Covenant, which means that they received the Old Scriptures or the Old Testament, not the Old Scriptures. They receive the Old Testament, which means they've been waiting the longest for the Messiah. And I think it's only fitting that they hear first what they've waited the longest for. But there's a second reason I think that Paul always goes to the synagogues in his city. And it is quite simply this. Paul is a Jew. These are his people. He knows their pain. He knows their fear. He knows their objections. He knows their concerns. They are not some distant people group that he is unconnected to. They are his people. And he wants them to hear the gospel. And he wants them to hear it from someone who can contextualize it in a way that they will understand it. I listen to a lot, and I mean a lot of sermons, like 15 a week, just because I don't really have anything else to do other than work and listen to sermons. And maybe that's a little sadistic because that kind of just blurs my work life and my personal life together. But I listen to sermons from churches all over the country. And I continue to hear this thing repeated from pulpits across America. Are you being evangelistic by inviting your friends to church? Are you sharing the gospel with your friends and inviting them to church? Now, I am not knocking that. Because I think there is value in bringing your friends in so that they can see what the church looks like, and they can see what the people of God do. So don't hear me as being dismissive of that. But, but let me just confess to you something, and this may sound strange, it may hit, hit your ears wrong, but, but hear my heart on this. 
I realize I'm not the senior pastor here, but I am a 26-year-old man who under all of this is covered in tattoos and sings in a heavy metal band. And I have absolutely no idea how to contextualize the gospel to a CEO in a Fortune 500 company. I have no idea how to contextualize the gospel to a biologist working in a research laboratory seeking out the cure for cancer. I have no idea how to contextualize the gospel to an engineer building bridges. I have no idea how to contextualize it to a construction worker who works day in and day out. But you know who does have an idea? You do. Because you sit next to them week in and week out. They are your people. And you know what they need to hear and how they need to hear it so that the gospel goes forth in power. Hear me when I say this. The gathering of the people of God on the Lord's Day on Sunday morning is not meant to be a cop-out for evangelism in your personal life. It's not I invited my friend to church. I've been evangelistic for the week. The purpose of us gathering is so that you would be equipped that you would be taught the scriptures well, that you would be discipled, that you would be prepared, and that at the end of our time together, the Holy Spirit would commission his people as Jesus commissioned his people during his ascension and send us out into the world to our people to preach the gospel as Paul preached the gospel to his people. Every church service is a microcosm of the Great Commission. Come, hear the scriptures, learn the gospel, take the unchanging truths of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and carry it forth to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation of which you are a part. Paul goes to his people because they're his and they, he knows what they need to hear in order for them to accept what God has done. May we always go to our people and carry the gospel forward. So Paul goes to the synagogues. We're told in verse 4 of chapter 17 that some of them were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. And attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. There is a phrase that is thrown around in kind of our day to day vocabulary, which says that familiarity breeds contempt. And I think that that sort of bears itself out in our day to day lives. Perhaps you've been on a road trip with somebody who is a very dear friend of yours. And somewhere between the East Coast and Texas, they stop being such a dear friend. <laughs> because you've just been around them for so long in a, in a rectangular death box that we call a car, and you just have no interest in hanging out with Johnny anymore. Right? Because the familiarity has bred contempt. Or perhaps... You've had the experience that so many people I know have had, where you go off to college with somebody who is your best friend, and that best friend status is removed from them after two months of living with them as a roommate. It's not that they're not cool, but man, Steve is a rough person to live with, and I would love to have about a 12-month detox from Steve. <laughs> I totally get that. 
But by the same token that I think familiarity breeds contempt, I also think it breeds complacency and it breeds indifference. You can be exposed to tremendous beauty and wonderful things, but the more you're exposed to it, the less you value it for what it truly is. And can I just tell you that my fear for us and for the church at large is that coming here week in and week out and week in and week out, we would lose sight of the glory of what is taking place every Sunday. That people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every socioeconomic status, every kind of background, every kind of occupation are being gathered together under the shared grace of Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. That is glorious. That is not mundane. That is not boring. That is not a box to be checked off on your weekly to-do list. It is tremendous when you come to the table of the Lord week in and week out, not by your own merits, but by the alien righteousness of Jesus. It is glorious when you join in the songs of the people of God together as Brad and the band leads us. It is unbelievable to me that we end our prayers in the name of the Son of God. And we cry out with a spirit of adoption, Abba, Father, it turns the world upside down. And how dare we ever think it's mundane. The Jewish leaders understand the gospel better than many of us do, that it is turning the systems of the world on its head. Russell Moore from the Southern Baptist Convention, in his incredible book Onward, says, the kingdom of God turns the Darwinist narrative of survival of the fittest upside down. When the church honors and cares for the vulnerable among us, we are not simply showing charity. We are recognizing the way that the world really works in the long run. The child with Down syndrome on the fifth row from the back of your church is not a ministry project. He is a future co-heir with Christ. The immigrant woman who scrubs toilets every day on her hands and knees and can barely speak enough English to sing along to your praise choruses is not a problem to be solved. She is a future co-heir with the Son of God. And if that does not turn the world upside down, I do not know what does. I remember hearing an account of an event that took place in World War II. And there were a number of American and European soldiers who were captured, and they were forced to work in the jungles of Africa to build this railroad uh, that the Japanese were building during that time. And in the descriptions of this sort of internment camp, it is the closest thing to hell on earth that you can imagine. Uh, because of the poor living and working conditions, everybody is getting sick with malaria and typhoid and all of the diseases that come with being in the deep jungle. Uh, men are stealing food from one another. They're killing one another in their sleep. Uh, they're turning people in so that they can get a little bit more food to eat. And there came a day where all of the men who were working on this railroad were gathered together by one of the guards. And they were supposed to turn in the shovels that they had been using to dig and hack through the jungle. And the guard counted the shovels and there was one missing and presumed that these men were going to try to escape with the one shovel that they had kept. And so he begins to point his machine gun at all of them. And in broken English, he says, all die, all of you die, until somebody comes forward about the shovel. And it was at this moment that the one Christian in the group stepped forward and he says, I took it. And the guard promptly beat him to death in front of everybody else, and then recounted. And it turned out that he had just mis miscounted the shovels. But 
in that one act of turning the world upside down and pouring yourself out for the life of another person, in that one act of recognizing that the kingdom of God is bigger than my personal satisfaction, revival broke out in that death camp. Men and women converted and came to know the Lord. They began to... uh, educate the other prisoners they started something that they called jungle university where they taught philosophy and theology and art to the other people that they were in prison with they snapped off the branches of the woods and the jungle that they were carving through and they made instruments and they performed symphonies for their captors because they wanted to present the beauty of the lord to them and at the end of their time when that camp was liberated when that that hell on earth was liberated they lined up every single person who had oppressed them and they forgave them in the name of Jesus. If that does not turn the world upside down, I do not know what else could. The Jewish leaders are more right than they know. But they level another accusation. He says, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. Now, I mentioned that one of the great errors in many people in my generation is political apathy. We just don't care. We can't make a difference. Why try? But you can be equally and oppositely in error, and that is political obsession. Because many of us live as though with every passing presidential election, Jesus is dethroned. And I assure you, he is not. Whoever sits in the White House, whoever sits in Parliament in England, whoever the kings and the queens and the rulers and the authorities of this world are, Jesus is still on his throne. There is a higher throne. There is a greater kingdom. There is a greater king. The early church recognized this. Now, we may hear this and we may say that that's, that's not me. You know, I realize that that the kingdom of God is bigger than whatever nation I find myself to be a citizen in. I realize that Jesus is king, and I totally get that. But the surest and the clearest exposition of whether or not you truly believe that is the way that you react the day after your presidential candidate loses. That's when push comes to shove, and we really see if we truly believe that Jesus is still Lord when the person we voted for doesn't sit in the White House. And man, my fear is that the Christian church does not understand this. We say that we serve the kingdom of God. We say that Jesus is over every throne and every ruler and every principality. But I just want to tell you something. When I look at the number of members at Baylife Church as opposed to the number of people who serve at Baylife Church, it tells me that we don't get it. And when I look at children's ministry, pulling teeth, to have brothers and sisters help them train up the next generation of saints. It tells me that we don't get it. It is insane to me that we have the opportunity to raise up future citizens of the kingdom of God and we can line up out the door to protest and to vote, but we can't serve on a Sunday morning to train up the people of God. There's a higher throne 
There is a greater kingdom, and what I am not telling you is to be disengaged. What I am not telling you is to, to be apathetic. I am convicted of my apathy, and I think we should be good citizens, that we should love our country, that we should participate in the process. The early church was committed to that. They were happy to say, we will be the best Roman citizens you have ever had. We will participate in all of the processes that the gospel does not prohibit us from participating in. We will be good neighbors. We will live peaceably. We will work for justice and peace in our city. But Caesar does not command my hope. Jesus does. It's with this in mind in the early church that a, a bishop named Polycarp was brought before Roman leaders. It's the earliest account of martyrdom we have outside of Stephen in the New Testament. Polycarp was 86 years old. He was a bishop in a city called Smyrna. And being as elderly as he was, the Roman leader who was in charge with trying him took pity on him. He said, I don't want to feed this old man to the lions. It's probably a good sentiment. And he said, if you will simply say, Caesar is Lord, we will make this all go away. We will pretend like none of this ever happened, and you can go on your way, and you can live the rest of your years in peace. And Polycarp responded, if you think that I will swear by the lordship of Caesar, you do not know who I am. Hear me clearly. I am a Christian. And man, my prayer is that the people of God in this church and in every other church do not say, First, hear me clearly, I am a Democrat. Hear me clearly, I am a Republican. Hear me clearly, I am a progressive. Hear me clearly, I am a libertarian. But we say first and most clearly and most loudly, hear me clearly, I am a Christian. And I will love the country that the Lord places me in, but I will never lose sight of the better country and the kingdom of God that he has called me to. Because at the end of all things, the kingdoms of a man will be found in the dustbin of history. But the kingdom of God and the kingship of Jesus will extend for all of eternity. And that is a kingdom worth laboring for. That is a kingdom worth pouring our lives out for. That is a kingdom worth our time and our love and our affection. Because it is turning the world upside down. Man, my prayer is that we are not dispassionate that we are not standoffish, that we have our hands firmly pressed to the open and bleeding wounds of the world and wherever we find ourselves, that we pour ourselves out for the people and our communities that we find ourselves in, but that we never forget where our true citizenship lies. There is another king, and his name is Jesus. And may we ever and always serve and labor for his kingdom above all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us the strength to come to your word in submission. Lord, we ask that you would stir up our hearts where we've been dispassionate. Lord, that we would repent of our apathy as well as our obsession. Lord, that we would pour ourselves out for your kingdom and for the life of the world that you have made. Father, I pray, I pray that we never grow numb to the gospel of Jesus Christ that turns the world upside down, that says that the meek will inherit the earth, says that those who mourn will be comforted, that says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And Lord, we pray that as we move forward, 
in, in this new season of ministry and as you bring Mark Saunders back to continue to lead our church as he has done so well and with such excellence and with such passion and zeal. Lord, I am excited to see how your spirit moves among your people. And God, I pray that you would continue to stir our hearts through the preaching of your word and by the power of your spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.